Hello, my name is Trent Miley, and I will be guiding you on a journey. Throughout this show, I will be dramatically reading text, monologues, and original work, and sometimes will be joined by my friends, colleagues, and mentors to aid me as your guide. Walking into a theater, we are transported to a world unlike ours. As a performer, I create a universe for you to explore all the sights, sounds, and occasional smells. As an audience member, I sit back and allow myself to be transported along on the journey. Riverside Readings is designed to allow you to enter a world unlike ours, and afterward, awards an explanation of the journey we undertook together. So come along with me as we discover what lies ahead on Riverside Readings, a dramatic reading radio show by me, Trent Miley. Today, we will be starting a new journey by reading The Olive by Algernon Blackwood. What is fate? Is it an unseen force that guides us to people, places, and things? Are there ways we can break fate or when being in a peaceful situation? Will we be okay with what fate chose for us? Those stories are not intertwined. But they share this same theme, and I look forward to our next journey together on Riverside Readings, a dramatic reading radio show by me, Trent Miley. Without further ado, here is The Olive and Skeleton Lake by Algernon Blackwood. He laughed involuntarily as the olive rolled towards his chair across the shiny parquet floor of the hotel dining room. His table in the cavernous salle manger was apart. He sat alone, a solitary guest. The table from which the olive fell and rolled towards him was some distance away. The angle, however, made him an unlikely objective. Yet the lopsided, juicy thing, after hesitating once or twice en route as it plopped along, came to rest finally against his feet. It settled with an inviting almost aggressive air, and he stooped and picked it up, putting it rather self-consciously because of the girl from whose table it had come, on the white tablecloth beside his plate. Then, looking up, he caught her eye, and saw that she too was laughing, though not a bit self-consciously. As she helped herself to the hors d'oeuvres, a false move had sent it flying. She watched him pick the olive up and set it beside his plate. Her eyes then suddenly looked away again, at her mother, questioningly. 
The incident was closed. But the little oblong, succulent olive lay beside his plate, so that his fingers played with it. He fingered it automatically from time to time until his lovely meal was finished. When no one was looking, he slipped it into his pocket, as though having taken the trouble to pick it up, this was the very least he could do with it. Heaven alone knows why, but he then took it upstairs with him, setting it on the marble mantelpiece among his field glasses, tobacco tins, ink bottles, pipes, and candlesticks. At any rate, he kept it, the moist, shiny, lopsided, juicy little oblong olive. The hotel lounge wearied him. He came to his room after dinner to smoke at his ease, his coat off and its feet on a chair, to read another chapter of Freud, to write a letter or two he didn't in the least want to write, and then go to bed at ten o'clock. But this evening, the olive kept rolling between him and the thing he read. It rolled between the paragraphs, between the lines. The olive was more vital than the interest of those eternal complexes and suppressed desires. The truth was that he kept seeing the eyes of the laughing girl beyond the bouncing olive. She had smiled at him in such a natural, spontaneous, friendly way before her mother's glance had checked her. A smile, he felt, that might lead to acquaintance on the morrow. He wondered A thrill of possible adventure ran through him. She was a merry-looking sort of girl with a happy, half-roguish face that seemed on the lookout for somebody to play with. Her mother, like most of the people in the big hotel, was an invalid. The girl, a dutiful and patient daughter. They had arrived that very day, apparently. A laugh is a revealing thing. He thought as he fell asleep to dream of a lob-sided olive rolling consciously towards him and of a girl's eyes that watched its awkward movements, then looked up into his own and laughed. In his dream, the olive had been deliberately and cleverly dispatched upon his uncertain journey. It was a message. He did not know, of course, that the mother chiding her daughter's awkwardness, had mothered. There you are again, child. True to your name. You never see an olive without doing something queer and odd with it. A youngish man, whose knowledge of chemistry, including invincible inks and such-like mysteries, had proved so valuable to the censor's department that for five years he had overworked without a holiday. The Italian Riviera had attracted him, and he had come out for a two-month's rest. It was his first visit. Sun, mimosa, blue seas, and brilliant skies had tempted him. Exchange made a pound worth forty, fifty, sixty, and seventy shillings. He found the place lovely, but somewhat untenanted. Having chosen at random, he had come to a spot where the companionship he hoped to find did not exist. 
The place languished after the war, slow to recover. The colony of resident English was scattered still. Travelers preferred the coast of France with Metone and Monte Carlo to enliven them. The country, moreover, was distracted by strikes. The electric light failed once a week, letters the next, and as soon as the electricians and postal workers resumed, the railway stopped running. Few visitors came, and the few who came soon left. He stayed on, however, caught by the sunshine and the good exchange, also without the physical energy to discover a better, livelier place. He went for walks among the olive groves, he sat beside the sea and palms, he visited shops and bought things he did not want because the exchange made them seem cheap. He paid immense extras in his weekly bill, then chuckled as he reduced them to shillings and found that a few pence covered them. He lay with a book for hours among the olive groves. The olive groves. His daily life could not escape the olive groves. To olive groves, sooner or later, his walks, his expeditions, his meanderings by the sea, his shopping all led him to these ubiquitous olive groves. If you bought a picture postcard to send home, there was sure to be an olive grove in one corner of it. The whole place was smothered with olive groves. The people owned their incomes and existence to these irrepressible trees. The villages among the hills swam roof deep in them. They swarmed even in the hotel gardens. The guidebooks praised them as persistently as the residents bought them. Sooner or later into every conversation, they grew lyrical over them. And how do you like our olive trees? Ah, you can think them pretty at first. Most people are disappointed. They grow on one. They do. I'm glad you appreciated them. I find them the embodiment of grace. And when the wind lifts the underleaves across a whole mountain slope, why, it's wonderful, isn't it? One realizes the meaning of olive green. One does. But all the same, I should like to get one to eat. An olive, I mean. Ah, to eat, yes. That's not so easy. You see, the crop is exactly. But I should like to taste the fruit. I should like to enjoy one. For, after a stay of six weeks, he had never once seen an olive on the table, in the shops, nor even on the street barrows at the marketplace. He had never tasted one. No one sold olives, though olive trees were a drug in the place. No one bought them, no one asked for them. It seemed that no one wanted them. The trees, when he looked closely, were thick with a dark little berry that seemed more like a sour sloe than the succulent, delicious, spicy fruit associated with its name. Men climbed the trunks, everywhere shaking the laden branches and hitting them with long bamboo poles to knock the fruit off, while women and children, squatting on their haunches, spent laborious hours filling baskets underneath, then loading mules and donkeys with their daily catch, but an olive to eat was unobtainable. He never cared for olives, but now he craved with all his soul to feel his teeth in one. Ah, 
but is the Spanish olive that you eat. These are all for oil only. After which he disliked the olive more than ever, until that night when he saw the first eatable specimen rolling across the shiny parquet floor, propelled towards him by the careless hand of a pretty girl who then looked up into his eyes and smiled. He was convinced that Eve had rolled the apple towards Adam across the emerald sward of the first garden in the world. He slept usually like the dead. It must have been something very real that made him open his eyes and set up in bed alertly. There was a noise against his door. He listened. The room was still quite dark. It was early morning. The noise was not repeated. Who's there? What is it? The noise came again. Someone was scratching on the door. No, it was somebody tapping. What do you want? Come in. Either the hotel was on fire, or the porter was waking the wrong person for some sunrise expedition. Nothing happened. Wide awake now, he turned the switch on, but no light flooded the room. The electricians, he remembered with a curse, were out on strike. He fumbled for the matches, and as he did so, a voice in the corridor became distinctly audible. It was just outside his door. Aren't you ready? You sleep forever. And the voice, although never having heard it before, he could not have recognized it, belonged. He, he knew suddenly to the girl who had left the olive fall. In an instant, he was out of bed. He lit a candle. I'm coming. I'm, I'm sorry I've kept you. I shan't be a minute. Be quick then. Less than three minutes later, he opened the door and, candle in hand, peered into the dark passage. Blow it out! He obeyed, but not quick enough. A pair of red lips emerged from the shadows. There was a puff, and the candle was extinguished. I've got my reputation to consider. We must not be seen, of course. The face vanished in the darkness, but he had recognized it. The shining skin, the bright glancing eyes, the sweet breath touched his cheek. The candlestick was taken from him by a swift, deft movement. He heard it knock the wainscoting as it set down. He went out into a pitch-black corridor where a soft hand seized his own and led him, by a back door, it seemed, out into the open air of the hillside immediately behind the hotel. He saw the stars. The morning was cool and fragrant. The sharp air waked him, and the last vestiges of sleep went flying. He had been drowsy and confused, had obeyed the summons without thinking, he now realized suddenly that he was engaged in an act of madness. The girl, dressed in some flimsy material thrown loosely about her head and body, stood a few feet away, looking, he thought, like some figure called out of dreams and slumber of a forgotten world, out of legend almost. He saw her evening shoes peep out. He 
divined in evening dress beneath the gauzy covering. The light wind blew it close against her figure. He thought of a nymph. I say, but haven't you been to bed? He had meant to expostulate, to apologize for his foolish rashness, to scold and say they must go back at once. Instead, this sentence came. He guessed she had been sitting up all night. He stood still a second, staring in mute admiration, his eyes full of bewildered questions. Watching the stars. Orion has touched the horizon. I came for you at once. We've just got four hours. The voice... The smile, the eyes, the reference to Orion swept him off his feet. Something in him broke loose and flew wildly, recklessly to the stars. Let us be off before the bear tilts down. Already Alcyon begins to fade. I'm ready. Come. <laughs> she laughed. The wind blew the gauze aside to show two ivory white limbs. She caught his hand again, and they scampered together up the steep hillside towards the woods. Soon the big hotel, the villas, the white houses of the little town where natives and visitors still lay soundly sleeping were out of sight. The farther sky came down to meet them. The stars were paling, but no signs of actual dawn was yet visible. The freshness stung their cheeks. Slowly, the heavens grew lighter. The east turned rose. The outline of the trees defined themselves. There was a stirring of the silvery green leaves. They were among olive groves. But the spirits of the trees were dancing. Far below them, a pool of deep color, they saw the ancient sea. They saw the tiny specks of distant fishing boats. The sailors were singing to the dawn, and birds among them, the mimosa of the hanging gardens, answered them. Pausing a moment at length beneath a gaunt old tree, whose struggle to leave the clinging earth had tortured its great writhing arms and trunk, they took their breath, gazing at one another with eyes full of happy dreams. You understood so quickly. My little message, I knew by your eyes and ears you would. And she first tweaked his ears with two slender fingers mischievously, then laid her soft palm with a momentary light pressure on both eyes. You're half and half, at any rate, if you're not altogether. <laughs> you know how to play, and that's something. You'll be all together before I've done with you. Shall I? Puzzled, some spirit of compromise still lingering in him, he knew not what she meant. He knew only that the current of life flowed increasingly through his veins, but that her eyes confused him. I'm longing for it. How wonderfully you did it. They roll so awkwardly. Oh, that. You've kept it, I hope. R rather, it's on my mantelpiece. You're sure you haven't eaten it? 
I shall keep it, as long as these arms have life in them. He seized her, just as she was crouching to escape, and covered her with kisses. I knew you'd long to play. Still, it was sweet of you to pick it up before another got it. Another? The gods decide. It's a lopsided thing, remember? It can't roll straight. He stared at her. If it had rolled elsewhere, and another had picked it up, I should be with that other now. And this time, she was off, in a way before he could prevent her, and the sound of her silverly laughter mocked him among the olive trees behind. He was up and after her in a second, following her slim whiteness in and out of the old world grove, as she flitted lightly, her hair flying in the wind, her figure flashing like a ray of sunlight or the race of foaming water. Still, at last, he caught her and drew her down upon his knees and kissed her wildly, forgetting who and where and what he was. Hark! I hear footsteps. Listen. It is the pipe. The pipe? For a sudden chill ran through him as she said it. He gazed at her. The hair fell loose about her cheeks, flushed and rosy with his hot kisses. Her eyes were bright and wild for all their softness. Her face turned sideways to him as she listened, wore an extraordinary look that for an instant made his blood run cold. He saw the parted lips, the small white teeth, the slim neck of ivory, the young bosom painted from his tempestuous embrace. Of an unearthly loveliness and brightness she seemed to him. Yet with this strange, remote expression that touched his soul with sudden tenor. Her face turned slowly. Who are you? He sprang to his feet without waiting for her answer. He was young and agile, strong too, with that quick responsive muscle they have who keep their bodies well. But he was no match for her. Her speed and agility outclassed his own with ease. She leapt. Before he had moved one leg forward towards escape, she was clinging with soft, supple arms and limbs about him so that he could not free himself. And as her weight bore him downwards to the ground, her lips found his own and kissed them into silence. She lay buried again in his embrace, her hair across his eyes, her heart against his heart. And he forgot his question, forgot his little fear, forgot the very world he knew. They come, they come, the dawn is here, are you ready? I've been ready for five thousand years. All together. Shaking her last gauzy covering from her, she snatched his hand, and they ran forward together to join the dancing throng now crowding up the slope beneath the trees. Their happy singing filled the sky, decked with vine and ivy and trailing silverly green branches. They poured in a flood of radiant life along the mountainside. Slowly, they melted away into the blue distance of the breaking dawn, and... As the last figure disappeared, the sun came up slowly out of a purple sea. They came to the place he knew, 
the deserted earthquake village, and a faint memory stirred in him. He did not exactly recall that he had visited it already, had eaten his sandwiches with hotel friends beneath its crumbling walls. But there was a dim, troubling sense of familiarity, nothing more. The houses still stood, but pigeons lived in them, and weasels, stoats, and snakes had their uncertain homes and ancient bedrooms. Not twenty years ago, the peasants thronged its narrow streets, through which the dawn now peered and cool wind breathed among dew-laden brambles. I know the house, the house where we would live. A flying form of air and sunlight into a tumbled cottage that had no roof, no floor, or windows. Wild bees had hung a nest against the broken wall. He followed her. There was sunlight in the room, and there were flowers. Upon a rude, simple table lay a bowl of cream, with eggs and honey and butter close against a homemade loaf. They sank into each other's arms upon a couch of fragrant grass and boughs against the window where the wild roses bloomed, and the bees flew in and out. It was Busana, the so-called earthquake village, because a sudden earthquake had fallen on it one summer morning when all the inhabitants were at church. The crashing roof killed sixty, the tumbling walls another hundred, and the rest had left it where it stood. The church. They were at prayer. The girl laughed carelessly in his ear setting his blood in a rush and quiver of delicious joy. He felt himself untamed, wild as the wind in animals. The true God claimed his own. He came back. They were not ready. The old priests had seen to that. But he came. They heard his music. Then his tread shook the olive groves, the old ground danced, the hills leapt for joy, and the houses crumbled. And now we've come back. We've come back to worship and be glad. I hear them. Hark. Again, he followed her like wind. Through the broken window they saw the naked fawns and nymphs and satyrs rolling, dancing, shaking their soft hoofs amid the ferns and brambles. Towards the appalling, ruptured church they sped with feet of light and air. A roar of happy song and laughter rose. Come, we must go too! Hand in hand they raced to join the tumbling, dancing throng. She was in his arms and on his back and flung across his shoulders as he ran. They reached the broken building, its whole roof gone sliding years ago, its walls a tremble still, its shattered shrines alive with nesting birds. Hush! He is in there. There, in the empty space, where once stood sacred host and cup, he sat filling the niche sublimely and with awful power. His shaggy form, benign yet terrible, 
rose through the broken stone. The great eyes shone and smiled. The feet were lost in brambles. God! cried a wild, frightened voice, yet with deep worship in it. And the old, familiar panic came with portentous swiftness. The great figure rose. The birds flew screaming, the animals sought holes, the worshippers, laughing and glad a moment ago, rushed tumbling over one another for the doors. He goes again, who called? Who called like that? His feet shake the ground. It is the earthquake. Kiss me, one kiss before we forget again. Once more your arms, your heart beating on my lips. You recognize his power. You are now all together. We shall remember. But he woke with the heavy bedclothes stuffed against his mouth and the wind of early morning sighing mournfully against the hotel walls. Have they left again, those ladies? He inquired casually of the head waiter pointing to the table. They were here last night at dinner. Who do you mean? Replied the man, stupidly, gazing at the spot indicated with a face quite blank. Last night at dinner, he tried to think. An English lady, elderly, with her daughter, at which moment precisely the girl came in alone. Lunch was over, the room empty. There was a second's difficult pause. It seemed ridiculous not to speak. Their eyes met. The girl blushed furiously. He was very quick for an Englishman. I was allowing myself to ask after your mother. I was afraid. She was not well, perhaps. Oh, but that's very kind of you, I'm sure. She smiled. He saw the small, white, even teeth. And before three days had passed, he was so deeply in love that he simply couldn't help himself. I believe this is yours. You dropped it, you know, Air. May I keep it? It's only an olive. They were, of course, in an olive grove when he axed it, and the sun was setting. She looked at him, looked him up and down, looked at his ears, his eyes. He felt that in another second her little fingers would slip up and tweak the first, or close the second with a soft pressure. Tell me, did you dream anything that first night I saw you? She took a quick step backwards. No, I don't think I did. But I knew from the way you picked it up. Knew what? That you were already half and half, but would soon be all together. And as he kissed her, 
he felt her soft little fingers tweak his ears. If you enjoyed listening to me talk, I have another show on Spotify called Extra Point, X-T-R-A-P-O-I-N-T, with my good friend, Bakari Garvin. And we have an Instagram at Extra Point Pod, X-T-R-A-P-O-I-N-T-P-O-D. And if you want content or knowledge about your host, me, Trent Miley, Follow my professional Instagram at Riverside underscore readings. This has been Riverside Readings. I am your host, Trent Miley, and I look forward to the next journey we take together. As Last Pod would say, Hail yourself and Magustalations. <laughs>